0: Father, we recognize that your majesty is such that you are incomprehensible. We can never fully comprehend your love for us, but through your word, you have revealed it to us so that we can apprehend it. We can get our arms around its truth and find that we're changed by it. So Lord, come and do that work through your word and do that work of your spirit, that he would uh, pour out your love into our hearts even as we spend time reflecting on this this section of your word together uh, lord we pray again for, for life change in the moment for realizations in the moment for truth in the moment uh, to resonate in heart and mind and change us in jesus name amen so uh, several weeks ago, Rosie and I, weekend, collapsed on the couch and decided to watch a movie, which is code for saying that she'd watch a movie, I'd watch the first 30 minutes, then I'd fall asleep. Uh, this is our weekend routine, and so we start to scroll through our options, and I am like typically, but somewhat ironically opinionated about what we watch, given that I'm just about to fall asleep in it anyway. But nevertheless, that's, that's how things go. And uh, we ended up selecting a movie called The Age of Adeline, starring Blake Lively. I don't know if any of you have seen that movie. Well, I didn't fall asleep. It's about Adeline Bowman, a woman who lives a fairly normal life until one cold winter night in 1935 through a series of miraculous events. From that day forward, she doesn't age another day in her life. The world around continues as normal, but she remains 29 years old as the world around grows Now, at first, this is is exciting, right? This is the stuff of fantasy, the ability to live, and not just to live, but to live forever. But soon, she gets caught up in some unexpected sorrow. First of all, with her daughter. Her daughter, who progresses from the cute baby phase through adolescence, through the teenage years, through adulthood, and becomes... An old woman while the mother remains 29. So you see Adeline Bowman hold her gray-haired daughter and weep because no parent should outlive their child. You also see her wrestling with unexpected sorrow in relationships. She can't allow herself to get too close to anyone because she knows that inevitably, one day, someday, the relationship will come to an end. And she says in one poignant moment, it's just not the same when there's no growing old together. Without that, love is just heartbreak. It's just not the same when there's no growing old together. Without that, love is just heartbreak. Well, as we meet our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's worth pausing for a moment just to remind ourselves of a couple of the things we should bear in mind about who it is that Paul is writing to. The book of 1 Corinthians is a letter. A lot of the second half of the New Testament is are the same. They're, they are letters, and so they're written to a particular people in a particular place, and it's helpful to know some things about them that we might better understand what it is that Paul is saying. Two things in particular this morning. First of all, It's important to remember that Paul is writing to a messed up city. Paul is writing to a messed up city. Corinth is about an hour's drive west of Athens. In Paul's day, it was a busy industrial center, home to about 700,000 people. And it was famous, but for all the wrong reasons. Corinth is kind of like the original sin city. So it was known for its corruption. This busy commercial industrial center was notorious for having um, very sketchy business practices. After corruption, it was known for sexual immorality. The main religion of Corinth was the worship of the goddess Aphrodite. And so the main religious place of worship in in Corinth was a temple to her honor that was served by a thousand sacred prostitutes. Sunday morning in Corinth doesn't really look like Sunday morning at MPC, okay? You understand what I'm saying? Um, after corruption, after sexual immorality, it was just known for a kind of a worldly ambition. It was a dog-eat-dog culture where you'd stab your own mother in the back if it would help you to get ahead. A town known for money, sex, and power. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Nothing new under the sun. So Paul is writing to to a messed up city. That's the first thing that's helpful for us to know by way of background. But secondly, and not more encouragingly, Paul is also writing to a really messed up church. He's writing to a messed up city, but he's also writing to a messed up Church. Now, Paul spent about 18 months in Corinth, and it's very clear from his letter that he loves the Corinthians, very clear that he has a heart and desire and warmth and love for them. But it's also very clear that they caused him untold grief. The believers there were known for their divisions. They loved a good argument, and they bickered about their leadership, and they bickered about their worship. They argued about who was the best preacher and whether it was more right to worship in the sanctuary or the fellowship hall. Um, Not only did they bicker about, they'd have these kind of divisions, but they, like the city, were also known for their sexual immorality. This was a church where the members slept around, where the members slept with each other's wives, um, often in the context of wild and rebellious communion services. They would come to communion, and then they would get drunk, and then they would leave, and uh, you know immorality would follow. I mean, at MPC, you'd need to drink about 38 of those wee cups to get And uh, even then, it's grape juice. So you, I don't know, it's not going to happen here, right? But like I said, Sunday morning, Corinth doesn't look like Sunday morning NPC. MPC. They're known for their divisions. They're known for their mar- immorality. And they were also known, the church was known for their lawsuits. Christians suing other Christians. Christians dragging other Christians into court um, in front of the whole watching world. This church, it's a messed up church. This This is not the city on a hill shining bright for the world to see. This is a messed up city, and this is a messed up church. And yet, note how our text begins. Look at the start of verse four. I give thanks to my God for you always. I give thanks to my God for you always. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying, when I think of the Corinthians in this messed up city, in this messed up church, what I do is I give thanks. And I don't just give thanks, I give thanks to God. I bring you into the presence of God in my heart and in my mind, and in the presence of the divine, I am grateful. Grateful for you with all your mess, with all your brokenness, with all your sin. And note that I give thanks always, like all the time. Whenever I think of you guys, whenever I think of this misstep city, whenever I think of this messed up church, it causes me to give thanks. And we say, Why? Like, what? There, there is no reason to give thanks for this city. And there is no reason to give thanks for this church. There'd be a thousand reasons for Paul to open his letter with the sternest of rebukes, and yet he begins by giving thanks. What's going on there? How do we make sense of this? Well, the answer Paul goes on to tell us in this text is, is twofold. There are two reasons that Paul give thanks and both of these reasons teach us much about the love of God in Christ. So let's look at these two reasons together. The first reason Paul gives thanks for this messed up city and this messed up church comes to us in verses 4 through 7 where we see that Paul gives thanks because he knows that the Christian life the Christian life begins by grace. The Christian life begins by grace. Look at verse four with me. He says, I give thanks because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I'm giving thanks because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So you are a mess, but you've received grace. And this grace, we read, was given to you. It wasn't earned by you. It wasn't the reward for you. It was given to you, which is the only way that grace can be Received. And it was given to you in Christ Jesus. Never forget that the goodness of God always and only comes to us through Christ. We only relate to the Father, and he relates to us through the person of his Son and all the work that he has done on our behalf. So the Corinthians in their mess have received grace from Christ. And not just that, but look at verse 5. It's changed them. It has changed them. In every way, we read, you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. All speech and all knowledge. The Corinthians believed in their hearts and confessed with their mouths. Knowledge and speech. They knew the gospel and they spoke about it. And so Paul doesn't doubt that their faith is real. Look at verse 6. He adds, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. The testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. In other words, Paul is saying, yeah, you guys are an absolute disaster, but I'm still giving thanks because the Christian life begins by grace. I'm giving thanks not because you're so good, but because God has been so good to you. I don't give thanks because you're so good. I give thanks because God has been so good to you. And this is how the gospel works. This is how Christianity works. Uh, God isn't on the lookout for impressive people to add to his team. So who got the best grades and who went to the best school and who's got the best job and who's raising their kids right or at least who's screwing them up the least, right? Those people... I want on my team, that's not how the gospel works. The book of Corinthians assures us that God looks out for the weak, the foolish, the despised, the end of chapter one, and says, that scrawny kid, that's who I want on my team. That's how the gospel works. God doesn't expect us to impress him. He comes to us in our weakness And lavishes us with grace. Now, most of us will have one of two responses to this. For some of us, this is a challenge. For some of us, this gospel is a challenge. Why? Because you kind of like the idea that God has selected us as an elite group of special forces to take on the world, right? And frankly, you did get good grades, and you did go to a good school, and you do do have a good career, and you're. Raising these kids right, or at least not screwing them up as much as some other people, you know. Right? And so you come here to the church, and church is it's part it's part of your overall resume. And you know you you need to do this. You need to be involved to some degree and and in some manner. But basically, you're a good person, and and that's that's enough for God. God is pleased with you because you're doing your best. You're trying hard, and things could be a lot worse. Well the gospel comes and says, no, that's not who the gospel's for. The gospel is for those who know they're weak. The gospel is for those who know they're foolish. The gospel is for those who know that they're despised of the world. The gospel is for those who know that they can't be saved by being good, but only be saved if God is good to them. In fact, we could go as far as to say this morning with um, heavy, heavy hearts. If you are depending upon your goodness in your relationship with God, you are not a Christian. You are not a Christian. You, you, you are not a believer. You have not been saved. And all that awaits for your goodness is a lost eternity in hell. The gospel comes and speaks a word of challenge until you realize that you live in a messed up city, until you realize that you're part of a messed up church. And until you realize that you yourself are as big a problem as anyone else here, you will not receive the grace of God in Christ. The grace that can alone save you. You'll stand before him on your own strength and your own goodness. And that's not how the gospel works. It's a challenge. Christian life begins with grace. For some of us, though, (laughs) for some of us, that's a big encouragement. A really big encouragement. Why? Because um, the rest of the world may think that you got good grades and went to a good school and kind of generally have your stuff together, but you know that you don't. You kn- we know that we don't. We know the things that we've struggled with in our lives. We know some of the biggest shame and guilt that we carry. Over things done in our youth, over the divorce that we had, over the abortion that took place, over the pornography addiction. We can know ourselves better than the rest of the world knows us and know that we are weak, foolish, and despised. Well, this is a good day. Why? Because you are qualified for grace. Your resume is perfect, perfectly imperfect. You stand as one who is likely to receive the grace of God because there is no sin, there is no shame, there is no guilt, there is nothing that you can do to outsin the grace of God. God is not all that impressed by your sin. He overwhelms it with his grace. And so you don't need to worry this morning that you're not good enough to be a Christian. That's what makes you a Christian, okay? Realizing that you're not good enough and accepting grace from his... And lean into that with me. Is that a word you need to hear this morning? Have you been keeping Christianity at arm's length? Have you been resisting fully investing in the life of the church because you just think, you know, that that's really for people that aren't like me. That's kind of for those holy people over there. I say, friend, you know, join the club, the messy club, the messed up club that's Corinth, that's the Corinthian church that is... MPC the Christian life begins by grace and so Paul starts by giving thanks second thing we see though in our text the second reason that Paul would give thanks in the midst of all this dysfunction is that not only does the Christian life begin by grace but the Christian life ends by grace as well Christian life begins and ends by grace. That's how it starts and it's how it finishes. Because Paul could say, okay, these guys have made a good start. I really see that they've come to know the gospel and they really do believe it and it is taking root in their lives. But how do I know that they're going to finish well? Because frankly, if anyone could turn this into a disaster, the Corinthians could. How do I, what, what confidence do I have that they are going to persevere in their faith? How can I be sure that these guys are really going to make it to the end, that they'll be lasting fruit for these believers? And so he answers in verse 8. Let's look at it together. Verse 8, where he starts by saying, Our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. See what he's saying? He's saying, Jesus Christ, again, pointing us back to Jesus. All the blessings that we have come through Christ. All the strength that we have comes through Christ. And Christ, we read, is the active agent who is up to something. Jesus, this morning, is on the move and he's he's up to something. What is he up to? Well, we read, he's up to the work of sustaining you. Jesus is on the move to sustain you, to help you persevere. Okay, Jesus, how long are you going to do this for? He answers, To the end, sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? He is on the move to rule and overrule, to superintend our lives so that we might persevere, persevere till the very end. Stand guiltless in the day of Christ when Christ returns as he surely will. We might stand before him and be declaimed guiltless, blameless, pure because of his grace toward us. The Christian life begins by grace, but it ends by grace, and then he continues this thought in verse 9. Verse 9 is great. Look at it with me. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's given us this promise, Jesus Christ will sustain you, and now he gives us the basis of this promise. God is faithful. God is faithful. Literally, the Greek has an emphatic word order that says, Faithful is God. A little Yoda-esque, but making the point. <laughs> faithful is God to sustain you to the end. How can you be sure that you'll make it to the end? Because he has promised to be faithful to you and sustain you until you get there. In other words, your ability to persevere is not dependent upon your faithfulness to God. Dependent upon his faithfulness to you. Our ability to persevere in the Christian life is not dependent upon our faithfulness to God, it's dependent upon his faithfulness to us. The gospel, of Christian life begins and ends with grace. So I have a nine-year-old wee girl. She's in the fellowship hall. Hey baby. All right. And um, one of the things we like to do together is go for like run bikes. Okay, so I run and she bikes, and the bigger she gets, the more this is killing me, right? Um, Because she hammers, when it's downhill, she hammers, out of sight, gone, disappeared. I have to sprint, thinking, you know, I can't go home and tell my wife I lost my child, again, right? And so, you know, this is a terrible situation for me. Um, And then I'll catch up with her, and I'll be flat for a while, and I'll be okay. And then, we always come to this big hill beside our house. It's this big, steep hill, and over the years... Um, Isla's legs are, are getting stronger but she still can't make it to the top of this hill. And so what happens? Right? I catch up with her, breathing. Oh. She pedals away and I put my hand on the back of her saddle and I push her up the hill. Okay? Then we get to the top and she turns around and says Dad! I made it! <laughs> right? <laughs> and I say ah, ah, ah. <laughs> And so it is in the Christian life. You and I, friends, we're going to make it. We're going to make it to the top of that hill and we're going to celebrate and we're going to turn around and realize God was pushing us the whole way. He was pushing us the whole way. Your ability to make it to the top of the hill is not dependent upon the strength of your legs. It's dependent upon the strength of your God. And your ability to persevere in the faithful life, in the Christian life, isn't dependent upon your faithfulness to him. It's dependent upon his faithfulness to you. It's such a good word in the gospel. Perseverance of the saints is the theological phrase, assuring us that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion, even until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a good word. Three closing applications based off this theme. First of all, we might ask, what does this mean? What does this truth mean for those who seem to have wandered away. Okay, okay James, you're, you're saying that our ability to persevere is dependent upon grace, not our strength, his strength, not our faithfulness, his faithfulness. Well, how then do I make sense of my friends, uh, my colleagues, my, my kids, who seem to start well in the faith but have now wandered away? It's such heartbreak for us to, to, to see these kind of things unfold. And the answer is, to be honest, it's a hard one. When people have wandered away, one of two things has happened. Either they really were a Christian, and they've wondered, but God's going to bring them back. But God's going to bring them back. Or, secondly, maybe they were never really a Christian to begin with. Maybe they were never really a Christian to begin with. Perhaps they had true faith and God will bring them back. Perhaps they didn't have true faith and were never really saved to begin with. It's a hard reality for us to wrestle with. In either scenario, I suggest we do three things. You ready? Number one, we pray urgently. Pray urgently. Pray like you mean it. Pray like eternity is real. Pray like th- someone who you don't know of their salvation uh, might be in danger of a lost salvation, a uh, lost eternity, and pray for them like God can save them or that God will bring them back. Either way, we don't know. Just pray that He will act. Because God loves to answer those prayers, He loves to answer those prayers. And he loves to work through families, and he loves to work through these relationships, and he he loves to hear you when you come to him and pray urgently. So pray urgently for your loved ones who have wandered away. Secondly, um, we could say evangelize strategically, okay? Evangelize strategically. What do I mean by that? I mean keep in relationship with those who have wandered away. Don't let them go. Don't let them disappear out of your life. Keep in relationship with them, even if that's challenging, even if that's hard, even if that creates some awkwardness. Stay in relationship and look for opportunities to share the gospel with them. Look for opportunities and make them strategic opportunities. Don't just beat them over the head with every single Sunday invitation to church, but find out things that they might enjoy. Give them a book that they might actually read. Invite them to something they're likely to come to. Think of how can you expose this person to the gospel? Evangelize strategically. And then third, um, wait patiently. Particularly in the context of families, Christians, sometimes we need to play the long game. Sometimes we need to play the long game. Um, you don't want to interact with your your loved one who's wandered away in such a manner that you're going to lose influence in their life for the long term. You want to be able to stay in relationship with them so that over the days, over the years, over the circumstances and the ups and downs, you'll still have a voice into their lives and when they're ready, you might be the one who's able to carry them home. For those who have wandered off this doctrine tells us maybe they're believers and they'll come back. Maybe they were never believers at all. In either case, we we pray, we evangelize, we wait. Secondly, we might ask, uh, what does this mean, not for those who have wandered away, but what does this mean for you? Maybe right now you're not worried about someone else wandering away. Maybe you're worried about your own salvation. Maybe you lack an assurance of your salvation Maybe it's a problem for you and a thing that causes doubt and worry and fear, especially as you lie in your bed at night. Are you really a Christian? Are you really saved? Do you really know Jesus? This doctrine is of great comfort to us because it assures us that you were saved by grace and you will be sustained by grace. In other words, you had nothing to do with becoming a Christian in the first place and likewise, you can't do anything to lose your status as a Christian now. Very often when we struggle with assurance, when we have doubts over our salvation, it's because we haven't actually really wrestled with the love of God for us in Christ. We've believed it, but we've sort of given in somewhere along the way to the lie that we had something to do with it and therefore could do something to lose it. But the radical news of grace is you didn't do anything to save yourself and you can't do anything to lose your salvation. Um, it's a little bit outrageous. You can't do anything to lose your salvation? Like, what? let me give you some examples. Let me get, like, I'm gonna make it one heck of a holiday weekend, you tell me. And I say, you can't do anything to lose your salvation. Christians say, ooh, are you giving a license for sin? And I say, you haven't preached the gospel till someone asked that question. If you wrestle with your assurance of salvation, Look to Christ. Look at him. Don't look at yourself. It's not about you. It's not how you began the life and it's not how you're gonna end the life. Look at Christ. Look to him. Receive assurance from him that his strength, his faithfulness, his grace were enough to get you on this journey and enough to see you through this journey. And I might just add pastorally to, you know, I've, I'm not sure I've ever met, I've met with lots of people who really struggled with assurance of their salvation. And I've never met with any of them that I actually thought weren't Christians. Why? Because people who aren't Christians don't really worry about whether they're Christians or not. Right? The very fact that you would wrestle with this is evidence to me that you're a Christian. Third question. Okay, what does this mean for those who wandered off? What does it mean for those who struggle with their assurance? And what does this mean for us all today? Today, concretely, um, as we wrestle with this world that uh, just has so much pain, from Las Vegas to the Gulf Coast. um, What encouragement does this word give us? And the thing that's meant a lot to me this week as I've I've studied and prepared for this sermon is just remembering, remember your story as a Christian. That your story had a beautiful beginning and your story will have a beautiful end. And our world had a beautiful beginning and our world is gonna have a beautiful end. This word of assurance of grace to me is like the blue sky above the clouds. Um, you know, it's just a terrible, horrible rainy day, okay? Jump in a plane, though, you go through the clouds, and you go high enough, and it gets blue. Well, so it is for the believer. There might be thunder clouds, but friends, go through those clouds, and there's always grace. There's always grace. There's always an assurance of God's love for us in Christ. At the end of the day, it is a comfort for us to be able to say that all is well and all will be well. Because we're depending not upon ourselves, but upon his grace. Love that's ended before its time brings heartbreak. It isn't the same when you can't grow old together. Without that, love is just heartbreak good news of the gospel there is no heartbreak there is no love begun that won't end in love completed the christian life begins by grace we're saved not because we're so good but because god's been so good to us and the same christian life will end by grace because it's dependent not on our faithfulness to him but his faithfulness to us it's how we begin it's how we end it's how we start it's how we finish when does god love us all the time, even to the very end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these moments together and uh, this opportunity to reflect on your word and to reflect on your gospel in ways that, that does uh, impact our lives. And so, Father, we pray for the eyes of faith to see that the Christian life begins by grace. For for anyone who is feeling this morning that maybe they didn't need grace, or perhaps that they were beyond the help of grace, would you assure them of both their need and of its provision in your son, Jesus Christ? And Lord, we thank you too for this teaching that the Christian life will end the same way it began. So Lord, I pray for those who, all of us really, who have loved ones that have wandered from the faith, We pray for them that you would do a work of grace in their hearts, that you would draw them back to yourself, and that we would be a people who pray and evangelize and and wait as you have called us to. Lord, I pray for any who do struggle with us, just this assurance of their salvation. And Lord, this is a hard, dark, difficult struggle. It's one that we can understand and one that we have such a heart for, but we pray that the word of grace would minister to them, that they would see, Lord, they are safe, they are secure because of you. And lastly, Lord, we pray that this eternal perspective, the fact that we know how the story ends, would have an impact on our lives today, that even uh, when the dark rains fall, we would see the blue sky above, and it would give us hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.